0: Father, we thank you for your word. What a privilege to have it in a language we can understand. We praise you for this time that we have now to look at these words. And we pray that we would hear your voice, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and see what this means in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a letter in uh, one of the national papers recently which told how a father and daughter had been sitting one day at home and the father was helping the daughter revise for her GCSEs. And in the midst of their hard work and toil came a text to the daughter from the mother and wife uh, who was out. And her text to them said this, what do you want from life? What do you want from life? Well, a big question at the best of times and certainly rather distracting from the causes of the First World War and the periodic table. But uh, father and daughter duly discussed what a good answer might be. You know, was it to find love? Uh, is it to achieve her dreams? Uh, which is more important, money or happiness? Uh, but then their deep philosophical discussion was interrupted by another text from mum. Sorry, phone keeps doing autocorrect. I meant, what do you want from Lidl? I don't know which question you find easier to answer. What do you want from life? What do you want from little? Uh, clearly the way you answer the first of those questions is rather more significant than the second. We may be very clear about what we want uh, from life, or we may feel we don't think about it very much. But whether or not we actually articulate it, very often the answer we give to that question will be to do with Material goods, perhaps, not just material goals, rather, not just money and possessions, but things we would like to see in our lives health, happiness, family, job satisfaction. But very often, then, those goals can then be the source of discontentment in our lives. I haven't got the health, the happiness, the family, the job that I think I ought to have, or whatever it is. Well, last week we saw in Psalm 73 how uh, comparing ourselves particularly with non-Christians can be a source of temptation. Well, you know, they don't believe in God. They seem to be having a great life, free from suffering and concerns. What's the point of being a Christian? And if you weren't here last week, do go and listen to David's sermon on that psalm. But discontentment can cause us to compare ourselves not just with our non-Christian peers but with our Christian ones as well. Why can't I have what she has? How come he gets married? How come she gets the promotion and the pay rise? How come I have to suffer? It's maybe no surprise then that in the Bible, contentment is praised as a virtue. Paul writes about contentment in his letters. Uh, it's clear he thinks it's not easy to find. He says later in that, in that uh, book, uh, Philippians, we heard from chapter 3, later on he says he's found, he's learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether in want or in plenty. The secret of being content. That means it's not easy to find. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Hard to find. Worth finding. Actually this is something that every Christian struggles with in different ways. So let's compare our contentment, wherever we stand with God this morning, let's compare our contentment or lack of it with the Psalmist in this psalm, in Psalm 84. This psalm is about a journey to the temple. It's in three sections. You can see we've broken it up with three headings on the the back of the notice sheet, if that helps you to follow or even to take notes. There is the longing to be in the temple. There is the journey to the temple, the travelling. There is the imagined arrival at the temple. Now you'll notice that word selah, You might have noticed it. You might have missed it because it's easy to miss. Do you see that twice in Psalm 84 in italics there? It breaks up the text into those sections. Maybe you've seen that in other Psalms and you've wondered what it means. Actually, this is a rare example of a word in the Bible where no one knows what it means. It it, it may be like an end of paragraph marker, although in other Psalms it sometimes comes right in the middle of an obvious section. Uh, Actually, it seems only to, to come in Psalms that have musical titles, like you see at the top of this one. Um, for the director of music, which probably means it has something to do with music. Is it change the instrument, play louder, something like that? Well, we don't actually know, and that probably means that it doesn't matter very much. But here, at least, as you can see, it probably breaks the psalm into those sections. And the other thing that links each of these sections is the word blessed. Do you see that in verse 4? And then in verse 5, the second section, and then in verse 12, the third section. You see, there is a journey, if you look through those statements about blessed, there's a journey from kind of wistfulness. Blessed are those in your house, but but I'm not there. Then through resolution, verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And then finally, contentment. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. So let's look first then at the longing Verses 1 to 4, longing. How lovely is your dwelling place. The word lovely sounds a bit sentimental, doesn't it? But it means beloved. The psalmist loves God's dwelling place, the temple. He faints, he cries out for it. Why? Well, because the temple is where God is. That is the place where God dwelt with his people before Jesus came. If you wanted to know God, to be near God, you had to go to the temple. And so he longs, he yearns to be there. And he envies the insignificant sparrow, the swallow, for how they get to be near when he is so far. Maybe he's in exile, that might be the reason in exile in Babylon, but he's envying the, the insignificant sparrow and the swallow like a lover, you know, keeping the envelope in which the love letter from the beloved was written. It's just an envelope. We see envelopes every day, used for all kinds of different things. No, this envelope came from her. It was in her hands. It's not just any envelope. See, without God, the temple is just another building. And the sparrow is just one of millions of birds, but it is God who makes the temple and anything in the temple special. This is what we were created for, this longing. Augustine, the African theologian in the 4th and 5th century, wrote in his confessions, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is the secret of contentment. See, if we look for contentment in our own circumstances, or the things that we own, or the things that we earn, we're going to be let down. Earlier this week, I was at the bedside of a friend that I was at school with, uh, exactly the same age as me, two children, very similar age, and tragically, he's in the final stages of incurable brain cancer. See, the world is too fragile. Life is too short to find ultimate fulfilment and rest in anything or anyone other than the living God. So if you're here and you're still would say of yourself that you're still looking into things, you're still investigating the Christian faith, let me encourage you to take this seriously. See, what, what are you longing for? What are you living for? None of us knows what's around the corner. One day we will have to give account for how we have spent the lives that we've been given. We were created to know God, to live for him, to long for him. And as we reflect on that, perhaps if we're Christians, we may actually find that slightly easier to remember In the dry times, in the sad times, in the suffering times for ourselves and others. Of course, suffering can take us away and make us think, well, you know, God is not there. Actually, we thought about that in other Psalms through this summer. But in in one sense, actually, it's a little bit more obvious when you have nowhere else to turn that you need to turn to God, because where else can you turn? But what about when, roughly speaking, things are going fairly well? Do we not naturally seek and often find at least in a partial sense we we often seek contentment in our work in our family and are we supposed to feel guilty about finding contentment in those things well i you know i had a good work a good good day at work today i you know i've got a great new job i'm actually quite enjoying it the exam results were better than expected the children are making progress oh no no but i mustn't find contentment in those things no 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 i must long for the living god is that how it works well look at verses one to four again the psalmist longs not just for God himself, but for where God dwells. You see, he can find pleasure and he can delight in created things, but he, he finds it because of its association with the God who made it. So C.S. Lewis, you know, he wrote Narnia uh, books. He, he wrote an essay called Meditation in a Toolshed. Uh, unusual title, but it he, he, he begins like this. I was standing today in the dark toolshed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes." Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different things. And he goes on to say that looking at And looking along the beam correspond to two different ways of approaching created things. See, either we look at them and we see them merely for what they are, or we look along them and we see their glorious source. Do you see the difference? See, if I merely look at my circumstances, my life, my job, my family, well, I will long for them for their own sake. And the thing is, one day I will find those longings dashed in some way. But if I look along those circumstances, as it were, I will look to their source. Like the psalmist with the temple, you see. He loves the temple because it's the temple of the living God. So in tough times, the place to look for contentment is God. Maybe we are learning that. But in good times, the place to look is still along the beam. So if we're finding contentment in our work or we're finding contentment in our family or in some hobby that we enjoy, praise God. Thank the giver and see the glory of God revealed in that thing. And then don't just long for more of that created thing, long for more of the creator who gives that thing. That's what those created things are designed to point to. See, that's the longing the psalmist feels, to be with God, to be near God, to know God. Then he describes the journey to get there. Secondly then, travelling. Verses 5 to 8, he imagines the pilgrimage, verse 5. Verse 6, if you look, Psalm 84, they pass through the valley of Bacca. The Bacca is a tree that grows in desert places. The pilgrimage to the temple is through the desert. See, spiritually, our lives are spent In the desert, like the Israelites journeying from Egypt to Canaan. Like the psalmist longing to be with God, but we're we're not there yet. And yet, unless we keep reminding ourselves of that, we'll keep getting caught out. Especially when life doesn't go according to our plans. Why am I suffering? I thought God was meant to be on my side if I'm a Christian. Well, he is on your side. But you're not there yet. You haven't yet arrived. You're still on the journey. It's sometimes said that it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive. I think whoever said that clearly hadn't traveled on a long journey in a car with small children. But actually, the arrival is meant to be better than the journey. But this life is the journey. And we're not yet that. We're not, we're not there yet. We're, we are now in the desert. That is where the journey takes place. The journey is not at the destination. The journey is to the destination. The new heavens and the new earth with Christ, that is the destination. But nevertheless, the destination changes the journey. Think about the difference between a journey to the airport to go on holiday and a journey to the dentist. It's the same car. It's the same people in the car, It's the same music on the radio. It's the same interactions with other road users, but the destination changes everything, doesn't it? That's how it is, as the psalmist describes the journey. See, those on this pilgrimage to the temple make the desert a place of springs, and the rain covers it with pools. It's a kind of situational relief, even in the midst of trials. And you see that there is a relief that actually comes from the pilgrims themselves. They make it a place of springs, maybe by digging down, by finding water. And then there's a relief that comes from the sky, from the rain. There's nothing to do with the pilgrims. See, that's true for us. Think about it. Think of the person who, in the midst of suffering, says, I choose not just to sit here and feel sorry for myself. That's not going to help. I'm digging down to find the grace of God right here, right now. Life may feel like a tragedy now, but I know in the end, in a technical sense, it's a comedy. Not that it's full of laughs, but in that technical sense that the ending is good. See, in a tragedy, you know the shape of a tragedy is like this, like an end. In a tragedy, the best bit is in the middle. The best bit actually is right now. This is as good as it gets in a tragedy because it's downhill from here to a tragic ending. But in a comedy, it's the other way up. It's a U. you, So in a a sort of technical dramatic sense, the the worst bit is in the middle right now and the best bit is at the end when everything is resolved. And knowing that, you see, transforms the, the present, doesn't it? That's what moved Horatio G. Spafford to write the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, which we sometimes sing at St John's. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the late 19th century. He had a wife, Anna, and five children. And in 1871, their only son tragically died of pneumonia. And in the same year, much of his business was lost in the great Chicago fire of 1871. But then in 1873, Anna Spafford travelled to Europe with the four remaining daughters while Horatio stayed behind. And on their way the ship collided with another ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and it sank. The four daughters died, but Anna survived. And Horatio immediately caught another ship over to England to join his wife. And when the ship reached the point in the ocean where his wife and children's ship had sunk, the captain informed Horatio. And there in the middle of the ocean, on his voyage, he wrote these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, that is digging down for grace in the deserts. So that's what the the pilgrims do, they dig down, but sometimes that grace comes like rain, in verse 6, from outside of us, maybe through the unexpected kindness of other people. People turn up at your door with meals, or, or whatever it might be. Things that don't happen when everything's going fine, but in the midst of suffering, suddenly there is new grace, new blessing, unexpected And actually, that's just a picture of the way God is constantly providing for us in the desert, as it were. If we have food and clothing and a roof over our heads, praise him. They go from strength to strength, the psalmist says, verse 7. The Christian life is about progressing in our maturity and ability to trust Jesus, no matter what. So that is the journey, travelling, and then thirdly and finally, arriving Verses 9 to 12, the journey finally ends. And although this is still in the psalmist's imagination, he's not actually there yet, but he's imagining what it will be like. And verse 9 at the start of that section is a bit of a a puzzle, isn't it? If you look at that, why does he he suddenly pray for favour on God's anointed? It's a reminder that our shield, God's protection over his people, comes through God's anointed. No good thing. Does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless, he says in verse 11. Ultimately, the only one whose walk is blameless is Jesus. But when we trust in him, when we take refuge in him, we find protection. We find life. And that is what he is celebrating in these final verses This is what we have to look forward to if we are trusting in God's anointed in Jesus and eternity in his presence, under his protection, sustained by his life. And so he says, verse 10, these extraordinary words, "'Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked.'" Do we believe that? One day in your courts. Better one day knowing and trusting and loving Jesus than a thousand away from him doing something else. And more than that, he says, just, just make me the doorkeeper. I'll take any role, anything at all, if you'll just let me serve the king. See, it's tragic when Christians fight among one another about positions of status, whether it's whether it's who's in charge of the rota or, or who should be leading a church or a denomination. How, how can we make status our goal when we are servants of the chief servant? And if Jesus is the chief servant, well, how can we ever say any role is beneath us? Getting to take the rubbish out For the sake of Christ and his people is better than a thousand holidays in the sunshine. Do you believe that? This is about valuing what we have in Christ, what we will one day enjoy in full, but even now can enjoy in part. Even now we can let the future transform the present. Let the future make me content right now. When I was a student there was a burger van in the centre of the town which was known as the van of death. It was where you went late at night if you wanted your food cheap, instant, likely to reappear several hours later. And on the other side of the same square was the van of life. They took longer to cook their food and they were more expensive. You see, often... In life, It's as if we're standing at a van of death, as it were, looking longingly at a badly cooked, deathly kebab, fretting that we won't have enough change to cover it, desperately searching our pockets to find the change, haggling with the chef to let us have it a bit cheaper, and somebody comes along and says, what are you doing? Have you forgotten about that letter in your pocket? You say, what letter in my pocket? And you pull it out, and it's a letter you haven't bothered to open. And you open it, and you find that it's a letter that says you are entitled to unlimited free food at the Ritz for the rest of your life. The Ritz, free food forever. And there you were, struggling to find £3.50 for a donna kebab made of horse. See, have we forgotten what we have in Christ? That's what we're comparing, isn't it? Free food at the Ritz forever, as it were, with a deathly doner kebab. What we have in Christ, even just a day in the presence of God, would be worth giving up everything this world offers. Even just the most forgotten task is worth performing because we're serving the King. Someone pointed out a thousand days is the length of a degree course. If you're heading to uni soon, or, or you're heading back. You could spend your entire time there living for yourself, doing as you please but even just one day with God would be better than that. And here's the thing. In Christ we don't just get one day. We get eternity. So what do you want from life? When our longing, our travelling, our destination, are all focused on Christ. No good thing does he withhold, he says. Blessed is the one who trusts in him. Let me pray. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Father, would we be able to say and pray and mean these words for ourselves? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we travel through the desert, what we need to keep trusting in is the promises that God has made. And that's what we're going to sing of in this song now as we come to the Lord's table the Holy Communion. Please do stand.